Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans. Welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is a podcast where my wife and I critique and argue over horror films like a couple of drinks at the bar. So maybe you never learn anything. Maybe we never enlighten you. Maybe we never give you a good sequel to whatever the <laughs> hell we talked about last week. I'm trying to think of a way to connect this to Scream 2, but I can't. <laughs> Uh, it's just the thought that counts. <laughs> but, but hopefully you just have a good time <laughs> listening. So, obviously we are continuing our discussion on the Scream franchise for this month with Scream 2 from 1997. So this is a film that was directed, of course, by the great late Wes Craven, uh, who also did Nightmare on Elm Street, as you all know. And then I feel like I'm just going to be mentioning like every Wes Craven title I can throughout the month. So whatever <laughs> I didn't mention last week, I'm doing this week. Uh, so also did Serpent in the Rainbow, which I think is great. A really clever, kind of unique movie, right? And also did Deadly Friend, which I just think is fucking <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and has one of the best head explosions in cinema. You've seen Deadly Friend. You know this. I know, but head explosions are such a touchy subject. They are, but you're not telling me that a basketball to the head exploding <laughs> it is not one of the best things you've ever seen. <laughs> it is. Anyway, uh, so... Directed by Wes Craven, it was once again written by Kevin Williamson, who of course did the first Scream, and it essentially follows, once again, Sydney, played by Nev Campbell, who is now in college and, you know, recovering from the trauma of the events of the first film, and then, what do you know, someone is out to make a sequel to her real-life story, <laughs> and the killings begin happening again, and that's all we're gonna say as far as that, to avoid spoilers, so, <laughs> if you have not seen it, so... Speaking of, if you have not seen Scream 2, do highly recommend checking it out. I believe it is still streaming on Peacock. Otherwise, well, well, well worth the rental. It's a great sequel. Probably one of the best slasher sequels ever, in my opinion. <laughs> and so we are going to be spoiling that, so please do check it out if you have not seen it before, because we will get into everything we can with this film. So before we do that, though, we have our usual spoiler-free content, and we'll let you know when we are getting into spoiler territory. So, as usual, we have our releases for the week, so... First up is a film called Ditched, and this will be out on the 18th on VOD. I have not seen this one. I don't know much about it, uh, but it essentially seems to involve, I think, ambulance workers who are who, who end up in a ditch or something, and then they're, like, <laughs> ambushed by criminals, and <laughs> it just looks... It looks it looks very silly and fun and bloody and so you know I, I, it does not look amazing by any means but I think it looks like a fun time so maybe check out the trailer and see if it's something you're interested in. Look, I was uh, sold on the title and then you give me the synopsis. They get trapped in a ditch. I'm in it. Uh, that's that's what I'm <laughs> recalling from the trailer. Okay, it's been a little bit since oh, I watched it. Oh, hold me to it. Uh, but so that's out on the 18th uh, and then next up is a film called The Last Thing Mary Saw and this will be out on Shutter on the 20th. This one I have seen, and it's a pretty interesting film, actually, that essentially involves a 
girl who's being kind of uh, interrogated about what happened to her and her family. Like, it takes place after this supposed tragedy or whatever. And uh, without spoiling it, I will just say that it is really interesting in how it involves basically this woman and the family uh, maid that they live with. This takes place in 1843. And the family maid is played by Isabel Furman, and basically, who uh, was the killer in Orphan. Oh. <laughs> And basically, uh, they kind of have, like, this budding relationship, and the family's ultra-religious, and so they're not all about that. Of and course. and it just kind of goes from there, but it, it plays out in a, in a pretty uh, fascinating way. It's kind of one of those slow burns that builds and builds and builds, but... Um, but it, but I really enjoyed this film. It's, it's very dark. It's very sus- interesting. And it also features uh, Rory Culkin <laughs> in a really uh, kind of fun role in this. And then it also uh, has the woman fr- who played the villain in Dead Silence, James Wan's film. All right. And, and she is extremely creepy in this. I, I, the name is slipping me at the moment, but she's incredible in everything that she does. Uh, but anyway, I really enjoyed The Last Thing Mary Saw. You can find my review for this on KillerHorrorCritic.com and check it out there. Uh, but that is one I definitely recommend you check out on Shudder. Probably the probably my favorite release for the week coming out. And then lastly is a film called War Hunt. And this will be out on VOD on the 21st. And it, this one is kind of your somewhat typical war horror where it involves this this troop that is sent out to recover some information from this crash plane and then once they get out there they realize that they are trapped in the middle of like witchcraft and (laughs) and a lot of like supernatural (laughs) stuff going on in the woods and they can't get out and you know that whole kind of thing but Mm -hmm. uh and it also features mickey rourke in a kind of fun role that oh nice uh and I, i always love seeing him in these movies but this one i liked the the issue with it is that the first two thirds are kind of pretty much by the numbers and not not really too interesting you know it's kind Mm -hmm. of fun but it's not it it doesn't really land a lot of the blows that it's trying to to get at you but but the third act is where i feel like the film just completely like explodes into like action-packed terror and i absolutely love the third act of it so it bumped it up quite a notch (laughs) so it's worth Uh, it to get to that ending yeah, the end's really, really fun. Like, the third act in this film is really fun, and I kind of wish that the whole movie had been <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, but but it is it is one that's maybe worth watching if you're into that kind of stuff, or if, like, witchcraft meets soldiers sounds fun to you. But I'm excited about it just because, like, I feel like normally with the war movies, it's like they're up against vampires or werewolves, and the Nazis are making creatures. So Well, Nazis, so- are, Nazis are involved. But of course the Nazis are involved. <laughs> the Nazis Damn are, it. The Nazis are all, <laughs> always involved with World War II horror movies, Chris. <laughs> I didn't know it's World and, War II. You and, didn't mention I, that. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I'm a little off right now, but... Uh, I mean, I mean, the Nazis are always involved with, like, the occult and stuff in horror. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Hitler and his goddamn occult. Um, Thank God that it seems like modern Nazis don't know shit about occult because they're too dumb. They do not. But anyway, so yeah, so those are your releases for the week. Uh, Again, I think Last Thing Mary Saw is probably the best out of those three that you can see, but the other two are... But War Hunt was interesting and, and Ditch looks fun, so check those out if you're interested, but... Alright, so one last thing we like to do before we get into sport territory is just the tagline versus the film and what we think of the movie overall. So the tagline for Scream 2 was, Someone has taken their love of sequels one step too far. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, you, 
What do you think of the tagline? What do you think of Scream 2 overall? Look, I think that it's a good tagline. I think it sums up what the movie's about. It's a little basic, but... It's a terrible tagline, because that's the tagline from the first movie. It just was sequels this time. <laughs> I the first, the first movie was someone has taken their love of horror movies one step too far. This time it's like someone has taken their love of sequels one step too far. <laughs> At least they're consistent. Sure, at least there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Look, and that's honestly what I'll give to, you know, the Scream franchise as a whole. Like, I like... I like the second movie. I think that out of all the horror franchises, Scream is one of the best at staying consistent to what its messaging is, I guess. Friday the 13th has no messaging. We just murder people in that movie. But, like, with the Scream movies, I think that they're super fun, they're super clever, and I think that you're still getting that in this sequel. So... I don't know exactly where this will rank because I do love the third one, but the second Scream movie, I think, is one of the best sequels out there in the horror genre. Yeah, no, the Scream 2 is incredible. Like, I, you know, I've gone back and forth on this film through the years. I've always thought it was great, you Mm -hmm. know, but but I've kind of, I've always sort of flipped it around and where I rank it in the franchise, but... As of now, I, I rank this number two. I do, having rewatched it and really studied it over the years, like, I do think that it is kind of a masterpiece of a sequel. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, just because Randy is back. Sure, Randy's <laughs> back. Yes, I'm not sure that's what makes it a great sequel, Chris. Um, <laughs> Absolutely is. Yeah, no, it's it's a great sequel. You know, it, it does... It, what I love most about Scream 2, without getting into spoilers, is that it... I think it's a really interesting film in how it kind of explores the final girl after the trauma of the original. You know, these were mm-hmm. things that a lot of slasher franchises have not consistently done well until we got to Scream. Even with Nancy and a Nightmare on Elm Street, which is, you know, my favorite franchise. Mm-hmm. E- even even with her in the third film, you know, I, I would say that the exploration of what she's gone through is not quite anywhere close to what we really get with Sydney here. No. <laughs> And just kind of, like, really getting into, you know, what the life is like after, right? Yeah. So I love that about it. I love how it explores the the way that we view these movies, you know, and what that kind of says about our culture and all that sort of stuff. So, but, but the other thing I want to mention, too, before we get into spoilers is just how memorable the trailer was for this and the excitement going into Scream, too. Because, you know, I still remember, like, being a kid and... You know, Scream had had been such a huge hit, and people were blown away by it and loved it. And so, when Scream Two was coming out, you know, there was a lot of interest in this movie. Like, people were very excited. And when you watch that trailer, and you not only realize like they're doing a movie within a movie with Stab, which I <laughs> which I thought was a really cool idea at the time and really fun. But I just really love this scene where Randy and Dewey are going through the suspects, and they're like, and you know, we're getting images of all the different suspects in the trailer and everything. And then it, there's just that moment where Randy says something like, you know, well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect to Dewey. And mm-hmm. Dewey's like, okay, moving on. You know? <laughs> and, and it was just so great because it, it set up this idea of like, you know, I remember going into that thinking that, you know, well, shit, like Randy, Dewey, Gail, and maybe even Sydney could be a suspect. Yeah. Like, you know, and, that, and that's what was so fun about it is because the franchise was still so new at the time. And, and these characters hadn't become legacy characters yet, right? So at the time, like, anyone really could have been the suspect. Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, you know, I'm not going to ramble on that forever <laughs> so we can get into this. But, um, but no, the trailer was really exciting. It, it, was, it was a really fun time to be a horror fan, the mid to late 90s, uh, because Scream did kind of reinvigorate a love for, you know, kind of the normal formula for slashers. 
And it, so it was just a fun time to see all these movies coming out, like Scream 2, Urban Legend, I Know What You Did Last Summer, you know? like it I was, love Urban Legend so much. Like, it, it was just a good time until we got super, super <laughs> meta and remake with it. And I'm not saying any of those films were bad, but it was, you They're know... different. It, it was not my favorite time as a horror fan. Yeah. But, but anyway, so we are going to move in the sports territory now. So again, if you have not seen... Uh, Scream 2, please go do so. It is streaming on Peacock, I believe, last time I checked. Uh, otherwise, very much worth the rental. Highly recommend it. So we are going to move into it now. And again, for those who are used to us doing the audience reactions and comments at this point, we are saving those until the end now. Those will be at the end of the episode. So keep listening through, and we'll get to that at the end. But uh, so, okay. So I think, of course, with Scream 2, we have to start where we didn't really with the first film, <laughs> which <laughs> which is the opening scene. Yes. You know, so so let me let me just hear from you first before I go on my rant. What <laughs> what do you what what are your thoughts on the opening scene of Scream 2? Because I know that you think that the original, which I think as well, I know that I know that we both think that the original has one of, if not the best openings of all time in horror. <laughs> yeah, I, I will still make the argument that I think that the first Scream still has the best hands-down opening for setting up what an entire film is going to be. Right. Scream 2 comes at a close second because it carries on that legacy, and that's what a lot of the Scream movies are really good about is carrying through this legacy set up in the first one, mm. which is we've got an opening that introduces us to characters that are smart and witty with um maureen played by jada pinkett smith and phil phil stevens played by omar epps who are just fun to watch as they critique movies as we get used to in screen movie you know they're breaking down the fact that you know a lot of the horror franchise doesn't have a lot of black characters or they die first so we're getting all this Mm. meta commentary which is great but we're also getting, you know, Maureen's death, which I think is so epic. Well, well, let's just let's just say this, you know. First of all, Jada Pinkett Smith, goddess, like, yeah, <laughs> like fantastic, in, like incredible actress, and I think that, you know, and, and Omar Epps is great too, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you know, Jada Pinkett obviously really steals the scene here in this opening, uh, and her fucking that, death scream, her, her death scream, like, look, you know, <laughs> people. <laughs> I, this is a weird thing to say, possibly, and, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of horror fans feel this way, but, you know, the screams in horror movies are actually maybe somewhat underrated. I mean, maybe that's not the right thing to say because we do have the whole scream queen, mm-hmm. you know, iconicism and all that kind of stuff. So so maybe it is respected, but maybe just amongst horror fans. But I think it's just amongst um, horror fans. But, but I, I wish that the general public really, you know didn't take screams and horror for granted yeah. because as someone who has made my own horror movies, let me tell you, a bad scream can ruin your movies. Yes, it can. <laughs> uh, and, and Jada Pinkett here, I think, has probably one of the best screams in the genre in this moment because it is so unbelievably heart-wrenching. Yes. And in how sad it is, it really nails home the point really of this opening right Mm -hmm. which is to kind of what's brilliant here again i mean kevin williamson's an amazing writer and wes craven of course an amazing director what what this film opening is really doing here by having this movie within a movie and having stab be you know this schlocky horror film based on (laughs) you know this these real traumatic events for the people that live through it Mm -hmm. is it's it's really kind of pointing the finger at us as fans and and us as a culture and sort of saying like 
you think fun, you think violence is fun mm-hmm. until you're faced with the real thing. Yes. You know, and that's what happens with this crowd is that they they're having a blast, they're having a good time. All these people are running around in ghost face masks, like stabbing <laughs> their little neon uh, knives or whatever, which that would it I looks amazing. I, I want that screening experience. <laughs> um, Maybe but, not during COVID times, but afterwards. Oh, not during COVID times, but yep. <laughs> but but they're having a great time, and then that is just completely shattered for them when they realize that Jada is not someone who's just part of the show, which mm-hmm. is the other horror of it, is she is literally being slaughtered in front of these people, and they think it's a joke, and they're even screaming, like, kill her, you know, because yeah. they think it's part of the act. And so to have her get up there and die and f- make them face real, actual world violence, you know, there's this quiet that goes over the audience, and it's just chilling. Oh, that entire you- audience is traumatized. Right, because it's this moment of realizing, like, it's not all fun and games. Mm-hmm. Like, this... These things really happen. Yeah. This actual thing really happened to a girl named Casey. And mm-hmm. and they're and they're being forced to reckon with that, you know? Yeah. And 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 I, I wanna make it clear to, to those who maybe don't like this. I it's not it's not necessarily, I think, criticizing horror fans. It's more so just kind of pointing out the sort of you know, just kind of the sort of oddity within our culture, which is that we do love violence, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean... Le- oh, I've <laughs> shouted kill her at a movie screen. <laughs> right? Kill him, kill her, kill all of them, fuck these guys. Oh, I mean, we've done it multiple times, especially when you're dealing with those people who have bad screams in horror movies, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, our culture, our culture fetishizes violence, and, that, mm-hmm. and that's the point of it. It's not, to, it's not to say, like, horror fans bad because they like horror movies, but mm-hmm. it's more just to kind of show us and, and ask us to talk about why we fetishize this stuff you know because when you really look through culture over history i mean long before horror movies we did we we've always fetishized violence i mean going all the way back to like gladiator times like we used to have a fucking coliseum where we actually watched and cheered over people killing each other right yeah and i mean even before then like if you believe in the bible which i don't but if you believe (laughs) in the bible you know going all the way back to to Christ being hung up on a cross, like there were probably people that gathered for that of like, oh, that's today's attraction, right? Like yeah. it's like we're just really fucked up. And even now, <laughs> even now, you know, I say this as a sports fan. Like I well, not an all sports fan, but I do like football because mm-hmm. I'm an idiot, I guess. But but even now with football, like, you know, there are people being seriously hurt during these games. Yeah. And and I'm not cheering when that happens, mm-hmm. but I am watching people get the shit kicked out of them, right? Yeah, they're the modern gladiators. Like, look, I love UFC. I don't watch Mm. it a whole bunch, but I will sit there and cheer as men beat each other into a bloody pulp. And there is something very odd about that. And one of the things I do kind of like about this opening is that, yes, it is kind of reminding us, but I think... There's a part of me also with it, with the audience, that it kind of reaffirms that while people love horror films and while we love watching those kills on screen, it doesn't mean that those people necessarily want to, like, deal with violence in real life, if that makes sense. My my view has always been that, and this is something that Screen 2 talks about later mm-hmm. on when you have the... The scene with uh, Sydney and David Warner, which shout out to David Warner for being in this. I mean, what a fucking cameo. But <laughs> but you have that scene later on in the film with Sydney and David Warner where David Warner's talking about, you know, basically um, like art kind of being therapeutic, right? 
and 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 how and how we sort of work out that trauma through art. So for me, oh, that battle for the soul is fought fought in the arts. Yes, exactly. So yes, thank you for the exact quote. But <laughs> <laughs> but to me, you know, what what has always appealed to me for the with the horror genre, and I think why a lot of horror fans do find themselves attracted to it, uh, whether they realize it or not, is that for me, horror has always been about confronting the violence of the real world mm -hmm. and, and and it is a way as as warner says to deal with that sort of internal uh soul of ours and and kind of confront it through art right mm -hmm. and, and that's why a lot of us paint and write and do music you know like we're we're working out these things through art and in doing so we're also giving it to an audience to do the same thing and mm -hmm. they and that it's why it's why i love movies because you know, or, or at least subtlety in films, because I, I love when people, you know, we all watch these things and it's all uh, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Right. Like we mm -hmm. all take different things from them. Yeah. And so, you know, like I might watch Scream 2 and and, you know, find myself dealing with, you know, uh, this this other side of myself I don't like, whereas someone else might watch Scream 2 and maybe they remember a horrible event in their life that they're trying to get over, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe Sydney just gives them strength and watching her deal with it. So. Uh, so I, I, I do think that people are there to confront real world violence, just maybe not in such a such a direct way, which is why yeah. which is why it's awful that, you know, you have Marines death there because uh, because they are having to then be taken out of this sort of alternative reality and be faced with the real world thing, which is not what they're there for. So. Yeah, they went there for a safe space to deal with the violence it, and all that kind exactly, of stuff. Exactly, yeah. And then, then they had real stuff happen. But but one one other thing I want to mention here before before we move on is that the uh, w what is also fascinating to me here with this is, so on the last episode, we talked about how Ghostface is sort of this representation of both kind of ourselves in the past right mm -hmm. and 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 basically us as a whole in society and kind of the mistakes that we've made or are making and what what i love about this opening too is that by having everyone in a ghost face mask and in this costume you know and, and we're and we're having jada pinkett on this stage and we're looking back at the audience all this, just this sea of ghost faces sea of white <laughs> it's it's really unnerving because mm -hmm. it's almost sort of pointing the finger back at us and sort of saying directly in that moment we are all ghost face mm -hmm. you know we're not all murderers we're not all fucking billy loomis or stew right like mm -hmm. we're not all them but we are all ghost face because ghost face is not any one person in particular ghost face is an idea you know Ghostface is a is a is a tragedy an anger a <laughs> yeah a, a, a an inability to deal with violence right like mm -hmm. and so you know by having us all in the audience like that like it's just it's a very unnerving moment for a horror fan especially i think you because it's like shit they're they pointing the finger at me they're not they're not criticizing me but they're pointing the finger at me and kind of making me think for a second about my place as an audience member. <laughs> yeah, Ghostface holds you accountable because he's the only killer. They're the only killer in horror that it's not the same person. Mm. You know, to your point, Ghostface is an idea and it's bottled resentment and a myriad of other factors. But any person in that audience could be Ghostface. Any one of us could be Ghostface. And that is what makes 
this character more terrifying sometimes than Michael Myers or even my no. boy Jason. My boy Jason will fuck you up, but only if you step <laughs> on his property. Ghostface well, will hunt you down no matter where you are. Yeah, and, and and to be honest, I also don't think that it's quite an accident that it's a sea of white faces. You oh, know, definitely. Watching, watching Jada die. Like, I... I I could be wrong, but that is purely intentional, in my oh, opinion. <laughs> absolutely, especially after the conversation they have in the beginning about... Right, and, and it's so tragic, too, because it's like they make that comment, and to nail the point home, then, of course, yes, in this film, the first people to die are two black people. Yes. Like it's, You know, and and, and I, I have issues with the film, actually, as it goes on with that, but we'll get to that in a sec. So. <laughs> but, you know, kind of going back to, you know, Sydney and, you know, this idea of, like, the, the battle for the soul of Fountain of the Arts, one of the things I do love with the Scream franchise is that it does tackle that issue of survivorship. Is that a word? No. <laughs> okay, I'm going to use it anyways. You know, but, you know, for me watching Scream 2, it is very much about watching Sydney, who has dealt with this tragedy and how her life has changed afterwards. And mm. Sydney's awesome, at least in my opinion, because she is tough. As she says, she's a fighter and she is trying to, like, put the past behind her and move on with her life, which I think is awesome. It's inspiring, yeah. it, but it doesn't work out that way. It does not. <laughs> well, to be fair, for her, she thought it was done. She didn't well, think she was dealing with a Jason or a Michael. She was just like, I shot Billy Loomis in the fucking head. It's done. Well, well look, this is what Screen 2 is all about. So, you know, th this is to me, this is the, ma the major theme of Screen 2 and the point is that uh, is that, you know, we all sort of look at these movies like the, the first thing that you always want to say about a Scream film is like, oh, it's it's commenting on this part of the genre or this part of us as a society. Mm -hmm. But but really what I think at least the first three films do so incredibly well is is less that and more just a commentary on the final girl it's herself mm -hmm. and, and sort of trying to evolve that, right? And, and to take it to new places that we haven't really gone before in the yeah. genre. And, and with Scream 2, you know, you meet Sydney and... In, in in the very beginning, like she does kind of have this sort of aura of like our, our average final girl who's lived through this, where mm -hmm. she doesn't really immediately seem like she's having a hard time dealing with it in a yeah. sense. Because yeah, she's getting her ass, she gets the phone call from this dude who's seen the movie and but she's but she's very calm about it. She's, she's kind of call her ID. Yeah, she's kind of like whatever about it. You get the sense that this has probably happened often, and she's kind of over it, right? Mm -hmm. And and we don't immediately get the sense of trauma. But then you have a roommate played by Elise Neal, who automatically brings up the, you know, I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> fine is stretched across your face or whatever, you know. And, and we start to get the hint of like, no, Sydney's not over it, you know. Yeah. And, and Sydney is still struggling. And, and to me, that's what becomes most fascinating about the movie is how. Sydney is dealing with this trauma because really the entire film is about Sydney having to accept that this is her life now. You know, she mm -hmm. doesn't she doesn't get the 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 rosy happy ending. She nope. she's she is stuck with this memory and and this experience forever, right? And that's the whole point to her kind of having to accept and actually say I'm a fighter because it's an acknowledgement of this is what a fighter's life is is you yeah. are you are in the arena constantly. You mm -hmm. are in the arena having to fight, right? Whether you like it or not, that's your place in society now. Yeah. And 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 that and that ties into the whole play with Cassandra because, mm -hmm. you know, Cassandra is basically I don't know much about this particular portion of Greek mythology, but <laughs> <laughs> 
but but Cassandra's, you know, this seer who foresees uh, what like plagues and shit like that, or the fall or of Troy, the fall of Troy, and then mm-hmm. and then everyone's kind of like blaming her and pointing the finger at her, and you know, asking her like, when does fate put their eye on you, right? Mm-hmm. And and to me, it's kind of like, you know, it's almost like what kind of happens here is Sydney becomes the object of obsession mm-hmm. for the world. Yeah, you know, and this and this is what I think Scream Two does really really well. Is that in the first film she's she's an innocent kind of being thrown into the situation, mm-hmm. and in this second film, time and time again we see her becoming sort of like Cassandra mm-hmm. in the sense that she becomes the object of fate's obsession of the world's obsession, and you see it all over the place. You know, between things like uh, like Sydney getting those phone calls from fans, mm-hmm. uh, Sydney being on stage surrounded by people that want to you know attack her or or even just be a part of her in a sense mm-hmm. even right down to Derek played by Jerry O'Connell singing to her in the cafeteria <laughs> and everyone in there is like clapping and watching them and that's mm-hmm. that that even plays into it because why I think that's there is it's showing like Sydney is at the center now whether she wants to be or not <laughs> yeah no I completely agree with it I think you know Going back to what you're saying about Cassandra, the big thing with Cassandra is that she had visions and nobody believed her with that. And we see that replicated with, you know, those first killings of of Maureen and Phil happen and Sydney Mm. immediately knows what it is. She knows that there's a copycat killer. She knows it's back. And everybody wants to deny it at first. Nobody wants to listen to her. Nobody wants to believe her, even though she knows this shit better than Randy. I love you, Randy. But he's in denial as well with this. Yes. But I think that it's really telling with Sydney that she's chosen, you know, a career in the arts. She wants to be an actress. Mm. And I think it's to the point that you're saying she has realized that she's under a microscope. Everybody's watching her. Even if Ghostface hadn't come back in the sequel, I think that doing that Cassandra role would have been tough for her. Because, yeah, she's surrounded by faces that look like Ghostface. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's what makes Sydney such a strong. Well, well, well people in mass. I, I yeah. think I think that just speaks to the trust issue that she now has to deal with, where basically mm-hmm. anyone in her life can be Ghostface. Yeah. Well, and Dewey even brings that up when Dewey mm. comes back, and he's just like, "Hey, you know, Sid, you have to be careful. If this is back, this these people, they're already in your life. They get off on that." And Sydney's response to that is amazing and tough, and proves that she's a fighter because she's just like, "What." You want me to go live under a rock? Right. And that's that's what I think is so interesting. I'm obsessed with the idea of seeing final girls after their original trauma. It's why Halloween 4 is one of my favorites. It's why I kind of like the Rob Zombie. Well, Z- Halloween 4 doesn't deal with the after trauma. <laughs> it doesn't, but I get that I get that moment at the end with... Um, well, with Jamie as with Jamie, yeah. as the killer, yeah, but that uh, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that that's really about what you're saying. <laughs> no, it's it's not quite, but like... You know, I do think that Sydney is one of our best final girls, not because we see her go through the first event, but then we see her live and fight through the subsequent events. Yeah, I, I think a better example of what you're saying is Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which, which is why which is why that movie is a little bit underrated. But Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> like that one. I haven't seen it in a while, but... Well, so, you know, something that Sydney says, too, which 
also speaks to my point, which I think is kind of fascinating, is that she we get we get this little hint uh, in the beginning that she is very opposed to organized religion. Which hell yes, the organized religion <laughs> is fucking freaky, <laughs> like not my jam. <laughs> There's also um, robes involved in that. <laughs> indeed, Chris. Uh, but uh, but but she makes that comment of how she's opposed to that. And what's kind of ironic is that Sydney, in a way, almost kind of becomes her own religion. Mm-hmm. Like, not, not for herself, but for everyone around her, you know, yep. because she becomes this sort of object of worship or disdain or whatever, where people are seeking something from her, you know. And, that's, and that ends up continuing all throughout the franchise. Like, you have all these killers that become obsessed with her and hold her up as, like, some kind of you know almost like a religious icon in a sense mm-hmm. that that they have to destroy or be better than or but that they also worship in some kind of way or uh-huh. hold up to a certain standard and and the the plain reality of it is is that she's not that but no. whether she likes it again or not she has to kind of become that one last thing that that I want to say here cuz I think it's kind of a fun little visual thing that I doubt was intentional but it it strikes me is that you have so again all throughout the screen franchise you have characters constantly like our legacy characters are constantly changing the way that they look mm-hmm. except for randy really although he does grow a goatee but <laughs> randy looks like an elf uh, in the second movie a little bit but but you you always see dewey sydney and gail changing their looks uh mm-hmm. in, in one way or another you know and it, what kind of struck me and maybe it's just a coincidence of the lighting or something i don't know but but Gail, I know, you know, Gail, you know, Courtney Cox, I, I from what I understand, wanted the character to look a little more striking, you know, or, mm-hmm. or to to look a little more trendy, you know. So that that's kind of why they did the like really kind of in your face hairstyle and the red streaks with her. The tiger streaks. Uh, the tiger streaks. But but so I know that that's where that came from with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just visually, I think it's kind of cool because when you really look at her, Sydney and Dewey. And, and and even Randy, you know, they they all sort of have a bit of a red tint to their hair, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and again, it's not purposeful. I don't think it's intended, but they all sort of have that. They're all kind of changing their appearances. And what I sort of love about that, and look, if you don't agree with me on everybody else's <laughs> hair and just Gail's, then you can just apply it to Gail if you want. But but what I sort of love about that is that they all strike me as these characters who are trying to move on with their life. Mm-hmm. They're trying to. They're all struggling with this kind of uh, dual identity, right, where they are someone, but they want to be someone else. They want to have a different life. Mm-hmm. And yet the uh, the red in their hair, whether it's strong or, or noticeable or not, is that, you know, it almost kind of strikes me as like this blood on them that they cannot... <laughs> That they cannot escape, you know. Like I don't know why you're laughing. I actually think this is pretty cool. But no, they- <laughs> I I don't I don't disagree with you. I never noticed the red tint in their hair before, uh-huh. but I do agree with you. I do agree that all of our legacy characters do have blood that they can't get off. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you know they they have this blood stain on them that mm-hmm. just cannot wash away no matter how much they change their appearance, right? Yeah. They they will always be the people that survived the original killings at Woodsboro and. <laughs> And to me, it's just kind of the beginning of, like, the life that they have to face now throughout the franchise, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, no matter how much they change, no matter where they move to, no matter what the fuck they do, <laughs> yep. they will always have this bloodstain and they will always be the object of obsession in this kind of sort of religion that's been built around their experience, right? So yeah, <laughs> except for Randy. 
Except for Randy, so... Randy, my beloved, they killed him! Yeah, so I, I, what, what were your thoughts when you first saw Randy die on this? I cried. <laughs> like, the first time... So, you, for me with Scream, you know, keep in mind that my horror education, if you will, was scattershot at best. So, when I finally watched the other two Scream movies, because 4 hadn't come out yet, I had gotten one of those, like, shitty discs that you can get at Target that had all three movies on it. Mm. Um, and that's how I watched it. And the moment that Randy died, I shit you not, I like cried because I you loved, <laughs> I loved him so much. And it was, you know, I think Randy himself kind of brought it up. No one's safe in a sequel, mm. and so you had to sacrifice one of the legacy characters. Why it had to be Randy? Well, I mean, I know why it had to be Randy, but it still makes me really sad. Well, look, my reasoning for why it had to be Randy is is twofold. For one, you know, a lot of people are, dis- are going to disagree with me on this because they love Randy. And, and look, I like Randy, too. You know, I'm not opposed to Randy, but... <laughs> you are Randy. Uh, well, I'm not completely Randy because Randy's kind of your typical film bro who, like, looks down on people who disagree with him. That's true. Which I am not that person, but... You are not. But yes, of course, I relate to Randy and just being a big fucking dork, but... But, you know, Randy, yeah, he does kind of prophesize his own fate in the sense, uh, which, again, is part of Scream 2, the whole idea of prophecy and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of seeing the future but and, and wanting to fight against that, which is what Sydney's doing the entire time and the whole thing with Cassandra. I'm ranting again. But, <laughs> but no, you know, Randy, yeah, he prophesizes, prophesizes his own future. And I think why he has to go is that, yeah, part of it is the fact of, like he mentions, you know, you're it's the sequel. Anyone can die. Anyone mm-hmm. can be a suspect. That's totally true. But I think also Randy was kind of becoming, I think, what 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 is not exactly... Let's just put it this way. Randy was going to become stale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. because, because Randy was almost himself becoming a trope or Mm -hmm. or, or, or not a trope maybe but randy himself was already becoming this you know tool basically Mm -hmm. uh using the franchise and in that sense he kind of has to go you know because the franchise is all kind of about evolving and and sort of moving on from you know these kind of cliches and Mm -hmm. already by the sequel with randy once again giving us the rules of a (laughs) sequel it's already kind of becoming cliche, right? Yeah. So that by the time you get to the third film, his video just seems so like I love his video and I will fight you. His video is fine, okay, but it's you. not. But it, but it, it doesn't have it doesn't have nearly the same impact as the first film, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, you basically just you get to this point where it's like he's becoming redundant and mm-hmm. he's almost kind of becoming sort of like a a your cliched slasher character himself you know yeah. and, and to me the the scream franchise has always been kind of about moving on from that or trying to do things a little bit differently mm-hmm. and so so i i think that's part of why 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 randy had to go you just can't you can't have randy in every subsequent sequel no, going I, through the rules of sequels you know <laughs> i agree with you i think as much as i love randy i do think that he's a character that you would have difficulty because you put him in the second movie and he's still pining after sydney and that's we don't need those characters aren't super interesting having the dude pining after the main girl okay we get it and i think that randy's death really was kind of a death of some of those tropes and also a death of look randy knows the rules and yet never abided by them himself 
Mm-hmm. Like, he should not have survived the first one because he's not paying attention to his surroundings. He should have been killed. He makes it through. With this one, Randy, again, challenges ostensibly the horror gods. I'm going to say from one of his opening scenes because there's that moment where um, Cece, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, asks him. Like, awesome cameo. <laughs> amazing cameo. But she asks him, like, you know, if you were doing a sequel, what would you do? And he knows Sydney has a boyfriend. But mm. still, it's just like, I let the geek get the girl. And we know in horror f- films, the moment you make a declarative sentence, you're going to die. I don't know. That's yeah. not true. I, I, it depends I feel, on the declarative sentence. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, I feel like... If the declarative sentence is, I'll be right back, <laughs> then, yes, then yes, you might die. <laughs> but I think, like, with specifically with Randy, because he is, you know, that, that, that linchpin of old horror tropes. Him saying something like that and then well, doing stuff like in his death scene where he lets himself be alone. Look, he doesn't it, pay attention to his surroundings. Look, 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 to me, it doesn't matter that he breaks the rules. Scream's all about breaking the rules. I know. But but what you just said is is the crux of why I think he has to die. He is a linchpin yes. of old horror tropes. And again, Scream is about smashing those tropes and, and, if, and subverting them. And so... If you're going to evolve, you have to kill the keeper of the secrets. Partially, I don't know. If that's quite the way I'd put it, but but yes, you, you know, you gotta, keeper of the rules. I don't know. I've been drinking. You have to get rid of that. So so, but also, I think one last thing is that it plays into the idea as well that this is reality. This is not a movie. No, you know, and and and, and like Scream set that up. You know that this is reality. It's not mm-hmm. a movie. And so I think Scream Two having Randy die nails that point home. Is that this is reality. This is yeah. not a film. And mm-hmm. so even though you're all fans of Randy, even though Randy is kind of like the, you know, the, the centerpiece of, of the rules of Scream, mm-hmm. you know, even though he has that importance, this is quote unquote reality, right? Yeah. So, so just because you're important in any sort of way doesn't mean that you live through to the next film. You yeah, know? So, so Randy kind of has to go in a sense. I was sad, uh, but I do see your point. He did have to die. He did have to die. Like, he unfortunately, die. he did have to die. Yeah. So, uh, but but no, I it is it is a great moment. It's mm-hmm. it's one of the more memorable moments, of course, from Scream 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely one that I think had a lot of us like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but so, you know, something I do want to make sure we talk about, too, is just this idea. You know, I want to go back to... Uh, to what I mentioned before about this kind of idea of duality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so like something that I find that's so interesting throughout this movie is that you you have all of this imagery of duality, and of mm-hmm. course, it's a sequel. Yeah, you know, and so we we're talking about this concept of a second part, you know, mm-hmm. a second piece uh, to a whole, and. So, like, when you look through this film, there's all these images of, like, the two sorority girls played by Rebecca Gayhart, goddess. Oh, my Amazing. God, I love her in Urban Legend. <laughs> uh, and I, I believe, if I remember correctly, she was also at one point considered for Sydney. So it's kind of weird <laughs> to have them, you know, meet in that yeah. scene like that. Uh, but Rebecca Gayhart, uh, Portia de Rossi, you know, mm-hmm. like, th- those two are a pair that's always going through the film. I so... I want a horror film with them being the killers. I uh, there was a point in Scream Two where I thought they were the killers, and I was so ready for that to be the case because I'm like, oh my god, two sorority girl killers in this? Fuck yeah! That'd be amazing. <laughs> Someone please give me that film. Yeah, we need that film. The closest we've gotten is Tragedy Girls, and it's not quite the same. Although I do love Tragedy Girls. Tragedy Girls Girl, so, is amazing. Uh, but you have them. You have the two the dual detectives, right? Mm-hmm. Who are kind of like different sides of a coin. You have, and, and then yeah, you have the whole discussion of sequels. 
and whether or not they're they're better than their counterparts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really what I think that's all boiling down to is, again, uh, sort of a crisis of self-identity, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, again, I think it looks all of that duality comment is really, I think, about our legacy characters and that struggle with their identity, you know, yeah. because you are dealing with characters who have suffered this trauma who are trying to move on to a new life mm-hmm. but they can't they can't get rid of that part of themselves that they want to move on from you know yeah. it's it's a piece of them yeah i think that it's really about you know reality versus expectation i think that's a a lot of for me that's a lot of this film interesting just because like <laughs> so it starts off with you know a scene the opening scenes of stab and the opening scenes of stab hey we're robbed by not getting to watch stab I want to watch Luke Wilson play Billy Loomis. Stab looks like the most amazing horror film ever made. but I, I mean, And, of course, I don't mean that 100%, yeah. but I'm just saying Luke Wilson as Billy. Can you right. imagine that movie? Like, that that scream is such a different scream, <laughs> right? but, but in the funniest way possible. Like, when Luke Wilson is like, idiot, and he smacks his <laughs> head, it's great. <laughs> Quick note about that. Something else that I love about Scream 2 is that, and I could be wrong about the, the purpose of this, but... I feel like it's sort of Wes and Kevin Williamson kind of poking fun at themselves in a sense. Oh, absolutely. Because I don't know about the rest of you, but the only moments in Scream that I don't like or that I think are a little too kind of campy for that film is when Sydney and Billy are having their kind of more emotional (laughs) moments. And look, both of them are great actors, you know. Uh, like Nev in particular is amazing, but um, but the dialogue in in their scenes when they are in that hallway in the high school, or when they are in the bedroom, and it's- you know, Sydney's talking about like her trauma in such a way that makes it feel so aloof, right? Like the, those scenes are kind of silly, a little weird. And and so watching Luke and Tori Spelling, who was also at one point considered to play <laughs> Sydney, which again. You know, props to Tori Spelling for even doing this. Like, shout mm-hmm. out to her. But, but those scenes sort of comment, I think, kind of on the ridiculousness of <laughs> those yeah. moments with them in the first film. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. And I honestly, I want to watch the entire Stab franchise because it seems like such a bonkers franchise. Time travel Stab movie? Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. But look, I feel like, you know, seeing, you know, that opening scene that we see of Stab really kind of, I don't know, sexualizes the opening of, of Stab. The op- the opening of Scream is so intense. And for yeah. Stab to decide to do a shower scene instead well, of what Casey's well, actually right, well, doing. Right. It's, it's, it's showing, it's showing, it's commenting on how horror typically plays out, right? Which is, yeah. you take this brilliant film and Scream and then you kind of dumb it down to, you know, the the blonde in the shower having to get nude and, like, all that kind of stuff. And, again, shout out to Heather Graham, who plays her in that scene, a great great actress as well. Yeah, and for me, I feel like that's that's really about the duality that we're seeing. Look, the, the movie sets up a shit ton of red herrings for us to get distracted by. It tries to, you know, dumb down the trauma that the characters have gone through. The brilliance of Scream 2 is the fact that it won't let you look away from what they've gone through. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And, and look, one last thing, because I, I, I feel like this is the most important thing to mention when talking about how this is about duality and all that kind of stuff. The fucking premise of the film itself is killers trying to recreate, yeah. you know, the first film with having uh, with having characters with the same names as the ones from the original and trying to do this sort of sequel, which, as uh, as Randy himself says, 
are, are inferior copycats, right? And that's mm-hmm. basically what our killers end up being, are these copycat killers who are trying to copy the original in a sense and do their own little take on it. So again, it's it, Scream 2 is brilliant because it, yeah. just, it, it involves all of this and it's, it's talking so much about crisis of self. And if you want to look, you know, beyond the themes of trauma and all that kind of stuff, you know, look at it in terms of horror. Scream 2 is, of course, also commenting on sequels. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, part two in a franchise is a crisis of self because part two in franchises are often kind of dealing with where do we go from here? How, how do we evolve this? What do we do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at so many sequels in franchises, they, they all are a little bit of a crisis of self. Like when you look at A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, for example, you know, <laughs> that was kind of this point in the franchise where they're like, I don't know. Like, what do we, where Isn't do we go from here? Isn't literally a dude with a crisis of self? It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I love Part 2, but it wasn't until Part 3 that I think the franchise really solidified, like, okay, this is what we're going to be for the future, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing with Friday the 13th. Part 2 is... <laughs> Part I've, two is better than part three. I'm not knocking part two or three or comparing them on, <laughs> on level of quality. I'm just saying that part two, I think, is still a little bit confused on where it wants to go. Mm-hmm. And then part three goes all out with, like, 3D and the hockey mask and all this kind of stuff. And that's where it finds its identity. You know, so that that's the point that I'm making is so often in horror franchises. Mm-hmm. The second sequel is where I think the franchise is a little is dealing with that kind of crisis of identity mm-hmm. and it's often not until the third film that i think a franchise really kind of solidifies and understands what it is and what it wants to do right with the exception so, of halloween well <laughs> well 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 yeah i mean halloween went through its own crisis but, but again halloween too is, a, is an example of a crisis mm-hmm. of identity because you went through the whole thing with jamie and her being the sister and john carpenter hated that shit so <laughs> um but but so 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 all that being said, you know, so yeah, the killers. Yeah. You know, let's talk about the killers. You know, we, we find out that that Mickey, played by Timothy Oliphant. The very <laughs> handsome Timothy Oliphant. It is it is a stretch for him to look like a psychotic killer the entire movie because that man is handsome. Right, right. And and and, and Debbie Salt played by uh, Laurie Metcalf, who I had always just known from Roseanne at the time, right? <laughs> you know, they turn out to be these killers and I think what's great about this a little bit is that, you know, Mickey himself, I think, is a crisis of identity. Mm-hmm. And, and and Debbie Salt isn't necessarily a crisis of identity. She just doesn't Debbie, want to accept her own. But she doesn't want to accept who she is. Yes. Yes. Well, so I guess in that sense, it is a crisis of identity. Mm-hmm. You know, but they both play into that. Yeah, I, look, I love the killers in this because I think that the, the struggle with Scream is the fact that you have different killers every time. So you have to think of new motives, new reasons why these people are doing the things they do. A, Mickey can fucking suck it because he betrayed the the horror movie franchise by saying that his <laughs> whole motive is about the trial. He is well, not a film fan. Fuck that guy. Well, no, and that's and that to me is the ultimate irony with Mickey, right? Is that mm-hmm. and, and and I I I wonder if everyone uh, notices this when they watch it the first time, but. But yeah, no, Mickey is not an actual film fan. No, you know, not that, at all. Like that's what we end up understanding is that he, you know, he had his college courses paid for uh, by by Debbie Salt, mm-hmm. and and we kind of get the understanding it's not really about uh, film for Mickey. It's not really about the sequel element of it. Mickey really just cares about the fucking trial and kind of yeah. being a star himself, right? You know, he, and so he wants the fame, right? Exactly, he just wants the fame, and and you know, it's playing into this. 
this fucking you know awful time period where <laughs> where I think I mentioned it last episode where I swear to God everything was about how violence in the media makes us all violent you know and yeah. once again that is complete bullshit yes. because I don't know any horror fans that are violent people. Um, you know, and that's a main crux of the Scream movies. We get it in the first one. Billy has, you know, his whole big epic line where he says to Sid, you know, um, movies don't make people kill people. They just make, you know, killers more creative. That's that's his line. He doesn't movies want the- don't create killers. Movies make serial killers more creative. Thank you. <laughs> and we get that repeated with our our meeting with Mickey, where he's going off about how he wants a trial and he wants to use like you know movies made him did it. And Cindy calls him out. She's just like, "You're psychotic." He's like, "Yeah, but we're not going to tell them that." Scream constantly reaffirms that movies do not make people violent. That's a choice they make on their own. And then Debbie fucking Salt, like, look. I should love this bitch because I love Pamela Voorhees, but Pamela Voorhees was a good fucking mother. She never, <laughs> she was, she never would have. I'm aban- not saying she wasn't. <laughs> she never would have abandoned Jason, and I think that's what we're dealing with with Debbie Salt is that she abandoned Billy, and she doesn't want to take any accountability for how Billy turned out. She even has a fucking line about it where she's just like, "I'm sick and tired of people blaming the parents for how the kids turned out." I'm like, bitch. You're the fucking parent. That's your whole job. Well, well this is this is a white privilege <laughs> bullshit we talked about last week, right? right? So it's like, uh, so so again, you know, last week I mentioned how how these films kind of look at like how we as a society or we as or we as the older generation have failed, you know, the mm-hmm. the gener- the the subsequent generation, and 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 yeah, no, Debbie Salt's the perfect example of that because Debbie Salt is this mom who's like. You know, you killed my son. Fuck you. And meanwhile, it's like, bitch, you weren't even there for your son's right? life. Like you, fu- you're the one who fucking left. I. It's not my fault. He turned into a fucking killer yeah, over that. Yeah, she you abandoned know? him. And and that's the whole thing is like Debbie Salt can't even acknowledge that you know she's a problem. Like she's she has to blame Sydney and put all the yeah. blame on her. So it's all about. So look, it, it's why I love again the the whole violence uh, causes violence commentary in the film and and how. And how it's speaking to, you know, how that was a conversation at the time. Because once again, as usual, it's all about parents not Mm -hmm. looking at what the actual fucking problem is, which is themselves. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to call out any particular parent. And and there are a lot of great parents. And it's Mm -hmm. not all about parents. It's society, too. Just us as a whole. You know, politicians can be worked into that because they're fucking assholes. There's multiple factions, but... Well, 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 they're fucking assholes who always try to make it about anything else but them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're always trying to be like, oh, it's the movie's fault. And, you know, it has nothing to do with the fact that I've made it almost impossible for people to survive on any sort of minimum wage. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... But but it's it's the lack of responsibility. Yes. You know, that's really what it is. It's the lack of taking responsibility for your own actions, which Mickey's a part of that because Mickey's trying to blame the movies... when really Mickey is acknowledging, I'm a fucking psycho. Yeah. <laughs> well, and going back real quick to Debbie Sell, she kills another son. Like, this is someone who touts herself as a mother and she's doing this all the time. Oh, who cares rational. about that? She's a fucking son. That has nothing to do with it. <laughs> she is, but like, she kills Mickey. She makes this whole point of how she, like, you know, nurtured him as only a mother can. And then she shoots him in the fucking chest. 
Uh, I guess she does make a point of that with Mickey. But she does. <laughs> she does take on the motherly role with Mickey, and then she kills him too. And I think that's you know going into the fact that she doesn't want to take responsibility for the fact that she is no Pamela Voorhees. Can, can we also <laughs> just mention how how Mickey, aka Timothy Oliphant, has like major Jack Nicholson vibes in this movie? <laughs> right. Like, like to me, to me, with the whole like Wolverine haircut uh-huh. and, and, and just, the like intense eyes the entire time. Yeah, like he he he's going like full Nicholson's shiny in this and it's just kind of spectacular <laughs> especially you know knowing timothy Oliphant and like the eventual you know kind of dork you see in things like santa clarita diet but i love that um, man so much but look some, something i want to mention too before before we wrap up here is you know you mentioned the the friday 13th connection mm-hmm. and something that is kind of fun to do with this franchise is sort of look at each film as kind of a particular representation of a specific popular franchise Mm -hmm. and so like if you if you consider it that way uh the original film is halloween you know because Mm -hmm. because the original scream is uh is all about or or first of all it has heavy influence from halloween you know with with like (laughs) just the fucking movie playing in the fucking film (laughs) uh for a good chunk of it um but it's also a little bit halloween and just kind of dealing with like you know the past just as halloween does with like Mm -hmm. michael myers sister and you know all that kind of stuff and going after laurie but but part two for me is Friday the 13th because we get this reverse sort of Mrs. Voorhees and Jason thing with Billy Loomis being Jason mm-hmm. and Mrs. Voorhees getting the revenge. But, but what's it, what, but you know, that's kind of fun because it's sort of like, cause it, cause it ties into the idea of not accepting responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, whereas the original Friday the 13th, like, it wasn't Mrs. Voorhees' fault that Jason drowned. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it is her fault, but she still has the Mrs. Voorhees role of being like, I'm getting revenge for my son. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's like, bitch, you fucking caused your son to go crazy. So. Right? She is like, look, she's got the Pamela haircut. She's got everything. But she will never be as good of a mother as Pamela Voorhees. Indeed. Uh <laughs> I, lo- I love how we're like, Pamela's such a great mom going on this fucking murder spree for her son. <laughs> they sh- they killed her son with their negligence. Well, not the particular people that she murders. <laughs> well, you know, she's, whatever. She's still a fucking psychopath. <laughs> she is, but I love her. She's one of my few serial killer moms. Uh, for sure. Uh, all right, so we got to start wrapping up. So who's your killer idiot of Scream 2? Like, I love him, but fucking Randy. Like, look, Randy knows the rules, and he lets himself be alone ostensibly with the killer. Like, he should know better. I, I would not say he lets himself be alone with the killer, considering he is on the middle of a fucking college campus in he, broad daylight. <laughs> he is, but I think that, like, with everything with Scream, knowing the fact that Ghostface is, is one of those killers that strikes in daylight, he should know to keep He doesn't it- know that. No, he doesn't. Killer struck in daylight in the first one. No, he didn't. The only person he killed. The principal. Yeah, well, Randy didn't fucking know that because by the time (laughs) Randy finds out that the principal was dead is at nighttime. So as far as Randy knows, the killer never killed a single person in the daylight. I still think Randy's my killer idiot because he knows not to be separated in a horror film and he let it happen anyways and he didn't pay attention to his surroundings. Idiot. You should know better. You know the rules, Randy. Yeah, I still disagree, but but I will. <laughs> should he have let him get? Should he have let himself get close to that van? Probably not. No. But I wouldn't say he's the idiot of the film. Uh, my idiot's once again going to go to Dewey because Dewey is the idiot of the franchise. Oh, uh, Dewey is a big old dumb dumb. And 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 you know the fun thing about the franchise is consistently Dewey is this cop who wants to be the hero, who wants to be 
the crime solver, <laughs> and yet Dewey just never has any fucking clue of what's going on ever. You know, like nope. when, like when, you know, it's 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 funny because it's always Gale that's the one doing the crime solving. Yes, and and Dewey's just kind of along for the ride. You know, yep. like like you have the whole scene where Gale's pointing out all the different names, yeah. and, Dewey, and Dewey has this kind of look on his face where he's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> like you know, like he just. <laughs> This is not to insult Dewey. I love Dewey, but but it's kind of insulting Dewey. I mean, he's a fucking moron. Let's I be mean, honest. Dewey <laughs> is quintessentially this dude with a good heart who wants to help, but he's just not well, as smart or as tough as the women look, in his life. Look, he he can he can say that Gail's book was insulting all he wants. He absolutely is Barty Fife and oozing he in experience. <laughs> so so I'm sorry. I'm sorry that he was hurt by that, and maybe it was bad writing, but she was right <laughs> yeah if he ever figures out who the killer is maybe she'll be wrong but right because because just once again dewey does nothing dewey doesn't <laughs> dewey does not figure out a single thing in this film <laughs> he falls out a flight of stairs and he gets stabbed yep gets stabbed gets bopped on the head a few times <laughs> like he, he's the baby that's constantly getting dropped on his face <laughs> In the Scream franchise. Oh, baby Dewey. And, uh, I mean, that's what he is. <laughs> uh, what about your killer death in Scream 2? Like, I'm torn. I I think my, my number one is is Marie, Maureen's at the beginning, just because it's mm. so impactful. Mm. It so sets off, you know, the franchise. It makes a lot of commentary, blah, 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 blah. It's such a fantastic death. But second runner-up goes to Mickey because he does a flip. He does a goddamn flip when he gets shot, and I love it. Like a backflip? I don't remember seeing him. So he just, it's one of those things where, like, he... I thought he, he just falls. He, no, he he pops up, and he does his little, like, roar thing, because he's the, like, the killer always comes back. And then Gail and Sydney shoot the shit out of him, and he does a little flip as he's falling into the thing. And the guns are not powerful enough to make him do a flip, and it's ridiculous, and I love it. So we have to watch this again. I didn't notice the back. Flip. <laughs> he does a flip. I think it's more like a front flip. Either way, he's spinning in the air in a way that he shouldn't be. It and can't I be love a front it. flip. What the hell? You, there's no way <laughs> he it's does a front a flip. flip if he's falling backwards, Chris. Do you even know what a front flip is? <laughs> I do know what a flip, front flip is, but you need to go back and watch the ridiculous aerobatics that happen when he gets shot. I believe you on the back flip. There's no way he does a front flip. Anyway, that's not the point. So. <laughs> Uh, my, my, my my killer death is Jada because yes, it's yes. the most memorable moment of the movie. I think that scream mm-hmm. is incredible. We we already talked about that. Uh, who's your killer MVP of Scream Two? So for me, with this one, my killer MVP goes to I'm um, the the writer Kevin Williamson, and the whole reason behind this is Matt gets very annoyed with me sometimes with the movies because I will make comments and I will ask questions. About what's going Who's on. Who's the killer? N- why not- did that just happen? <laughs> okay, it's more the why did that <laughs> that just happen or pointing out something ridiculous. And then every single time we wait about like five seconds and then Gail Weathers answers my question. Well, this is my favorite thing that you do because you're like, because <laughs> I, so, so in the first film, just so you all know that Chris <laughs> is terrible. Uh, is <laughs> it, uh, dur- during the, during the first film, Chris was like, Gail Weathers sounds like a meteorologist. I can't believe they've never mentioned that. And I'm like, Chris, Gail flat out herself says that she sounds like a weather reporter. Yeah, Matt had to say things like that multiple times during the first one. And in the second one, he learned to just wait until Gail answered my questions. Yeah, pretty much. So I think that that's, that's the brilliance of Scream, is that Scream knows its audience so well that it knows the stupid-ass questions that dumbasses like me are going to ask, and then answers them in the film. It does. And an example of that is Gail's cameraman, Joel, played by Dwayne Martin, 
who who this so okay i didn't really talk about this yet and just so just really quick because we're already starting to go over time a little bit he, he is this black character who is the voice of reason where he's like he he is saying what the audience knows which is i'm not fucking staying around in this fucking murder campus you know like <laughs> fuck you you know and, and he takes off and he's the one smart character who's like i'm getting the fuck out of dodge you know yeah but but again as as much as i i love stuff like that the one my one complaint with scream 2 if it's gonna bring up stuff like the fact that you know uh that we ended up with this kind of awful sort of trope in horror which is the black people always die first right mm-hmm. is that despite acknowledgement of all of that we still don't get a black star we still yeah. don't <laughs> you know we still we still don't get that character that that lives to the end and becomes part of the franchise yeah. and the legacy characters right it's still just these three fucking white people yeah. but <laughs> that's not offense to anybody you know or anything like that but i'm just saying like if you're gonna make that point it would have been fun to you know maybe have a character that Maybe uh, Haley should have survived. Maybe Haley should not have died because yeah. Sydney wanted to stay and see who was under the mask. You know, like yep. it's it's sort of contradictory to the point, but at the same time, also commenting on the point and the genre and how that always happens. So I I don't know. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's not. But uh, it's tough with the meta <laughs> stuff to figure out what's intentional and what's not. A little bit, but it but it is certainly you know like kind of like come on come on man like when, when she <laughs> dies because it's like. Okay, this is exactly the problem with with yep. horror movies in the '90s. Is the black character always fucking dies for the white character, you know, yep. and, that, and that shouldn't be the case. But anyway, uh, I could go on a rant about that all day. So, uh, my killer MVP is Nev Campbell, and it's for the fact that uh, of the entire franchise, I think that this is Campbell's best performance. You know, I think that I think that Campbell uh, does a great job of expressing the pain that Sydney's going through. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of like the difficulty that she has is kind of overcoming the trauma and, and accepting her new life, right? And, and she has like some of her best moments in this, I think. Like I love when, when, when she tells Mickey, you know, I, I forget what she says first, something about Billy Loomis, but then she says, I fucking killed him, you know, and then she <laughs> s- smacks the Greek letters across, <laughs> across Mickey's eyes. And I, I think she has some of the best dialogue for her character in mm-hmm. this sequel. I think that... You know, you really see a lot of Cindy's strength in this film. Like, I absolutely love uh, the performance with the Cassandra play. Yeah. By the way, the most well-produced play of, right. in college ever. Like, the production design in that is fucking phenomenal. And there's no way ever any college play would ever look <laughs> that good. But but I, I think you see all of that strength and that pain and that emotion in her in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throughout this film and just the way that she's dealing with you know, trying to figure out if her boyfriend's a killer or not. Like, I just, yeah. I to me, this is Nev's best moment in the franchise. She has some really good ones in part three, too, but I, I just I just think that she really does a lot of uh, heavy lifting in this movie. So, yeah. for me, she's the MVP. But, all right, so moving on to our audience reaction and wrapping up here. So, you know, as you all know, every week on Twitter, at Killer Critics, we like to put up a poll, kind of getting your thoughts on the film and what you think of it. So, between love it, it's fine, don't like it, and never seen it, where do you think Scream 2 falls with the audience? Oh, sequels are always tough. I want to say that it's love it because I love it, but I'm going to go with it's fine because I feel like horror fans can be all over the place when it comes to sequels. Run! Uh, so, I hope I'm wrong in a good way. <laughs> uh, so Love It is 53.9%. Fuck yeah. Uh, it's Fine was 32.6%. Don't Like It was 3.4%. And Never Seen It was a surprising 10.1%. So 
the, the never seen it. That that's actually a lot of you. You need to go see this movie. It's it's great. It's Scream. It's, it's Scream Two. It's a good sequel. <laughs> trust good, us. It's a good sequel. You shouldn't trust us with anything, but but trust hey, us on this. <laughs> I am very trustworthy. You are not trustworthy. Um, <laughs> I just have shit taste. Well, that's true. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so we always like to get comments as well from you all on these. So these are all from Twitter. Again, uh, we can never fit every comment into this. So I just appreciate everyone for leaving the comments that they do. We can only fit in so many. Uh, but first up is Narcotic Casser One. So that's Narcotic C A S S E R, and then the number one. And they say this is my go-to of the franchise, as I feel it whittles the franchise to its emotional core particular with Sydney, Gale, and Dewey. You really do feel all of them find their essence here. A particular standout scene for me is Sydney's conversation with David Warner, as we talked about, which great moment. Uh, also, this is a reminder to address how the killer represents the failings of parents and how they refuse to take responsibility for their shortcomings by shifting the blame onto others and lashing out on those who disagree. The killer may be the prototypical Karen, of course, referring to <laughs> Dewey's or Billy's mom there. You know? <laughs> Oh, I love I love calling Billy's mama Karen. That she is, totally is. She a Karen. totally is. N- Narcotic Caster One's absolutely right. Look, They're totally a Karen. <laughs> look, Narcotic Caster One has absolutely nailed it. This is why you know Scream Two is one of the best True Blue sequels. It predicted Karens. <laughs> it did, but one of the True Blue good sequels is that they're right. This gets Scream all in one film, and it gets the characters at such a pivotal moment in their lives, and that's why this movie is great. Mm. One is great. Three is weird, but I fucking love it. But two captures the essence of Scream in a way that no other Scream film has. And Agreed. Yeah, it's great. No, a hundred percent. You know the and the other of Karens. One, the other ones have all touched on it, but Scream Two does the absolute best job of really getting into how these characters are dealing with their trauma post Scream. You know, yes. Um, none of the others, I think, quite captured that as well as this film does. And yeah, no, it totally predicts Karen, and it to- you know, <laughs> like we were talking about before with. You know, the the inacceptance of responsibility. Again, again, I think that ties back to Ghostface. And that's why that's mm-hmm. why I love that symbol, that that symbol of that 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 costume as as a costume for the killer, because you know, the the thing that really sets Scream apart from other iconic horror franchises is that we have is is that there is it's not one killer that just continues returning under the mask. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the mask is all of us. The mask yeah. is the mask is our collective societal pain or inacceptance of responsibility for mm-hmm. violence, you know? And so so I love that you have these characters consistently in the franchise who are unable to accept responsibility for their actions, yeah. you know? Because that, that, that just speaks to all of us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and not being able to accept our part in that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so no, I, I think that's a great comment. Thank you, Narcotic Caster 1. Uh, for commenting and pointing that out, I think that really is like a big part of kind of what sets this apart from your average horror sequel. You know, there there's a lot going on in Scream 2 and yeah. much more so than you see in some of these <laughs> others. So anyway, thank you for the comment. Really appreciate it. Uh, next up is a comment from at Shannon Morant. So that's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-M-O-R-A-N-T. And they say... Or, and they had a couple questions for us. They asked, did you like what they did with Cotton Weary, who I can't believe we didn't talk about at all during this episode. Uh, sorry, Cotton. Uh, but they asked, uh, did you like what they did with Cotton Weary after being falsely accused as he's trying to cash in on fame? 
And were you shocked they killed off Randy because it comes out of nowhere? So we already talked a, a lot about Randy, so hopefully that answers that part of the question. But what do you think of uh, of Cotton Weary and his role in this? I think Cotton Weary was the perfect red herring for this film. and something, Totally. And something that it needed. Cotton is also one of our characters that we don't want to acknowledge, who's also dealing with the fallout of the first film. I think that... Liv Schreiber did a great job being our red herring. He had this perfect mix of, you know, deviousness to him. He absolutely fucking would have killed Sydney if she didn't agree to the interview. We all know. Oh, he would have. Absolutely. No, he wouldn't have. I don't. He would have. <laughs> I disagree. I think. Look, that to me, that's not the point of Cotton. That you're falling for the red herring. <laughs> you know, the the point of Cotton is Cotton. You know, Cotton is Cotton connects better to the audience in in the beginning, mm-hmm. watching the stab film because Cotton, you know, Cotton to me is this person who is still disconnected a bit from the violence and yeah. and and you know, it's 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 funny because every other character for the most part. Uh, is trying to move on mm-hmm. from the trauma. Meanwhile, Cotton is trying to dive headfirst into it because Cotton, you know, Cotton feels like he, like like Cotton wants the attention. Cotton, yes. Cotton's a fame whore. You know? Yes, Cotton, he is. Cotton, Cotton, and it's so funny because Cotton, you know, has these moments of like, I just want to get on. Like he says things like, I just want to get on with my life just like everybody else. And it's like, no, you don't, no. Cotton. <laughs> you want to live in this role forever because you know, you like the fame, you like the attention. And so Cotton really is like this complete opposite foil of Sydney where he just, he wants everything Sydney doesn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought he's Mickey without the murderous tendencies. Nah, well, I, a little bit. I mean, because Mickey wants the whole attention the of the trial, too. right? Yeah. So so I, I guess you could say that. Yeah, he's a little bit of a of, of Mickey's duel, right? Mm-hmm. Although I would still say that's, of course, you know, Miss Loomis. But <laughs> but no, but uh, as far as like, okay, did I like what they did with Cotton Weary? Absolutely, Chamorant, or absolutely, James. You know, I his real name's James. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, absolutely, I, I love what they do with Cotton. I, I, Cotton was a great red herring. Mm-hmm. There, I remember watching this film the first time and thinking multiple times that Cotton was potentially one of the killers, although I thought it was a little too easy, so it probably wasn't him. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I thought that was really interesting with how they try to use him to cash in on fame because, again, it just talks to, like, the the, the unacknowledgement of real-world violence and, mm-hmm. you know, and how we kind of use that to our own advantage. And it kind of, you know, this film, in a sense, is sort of a precursor to part four where it becomes, you know, that one deals a lot with, like, wanting fame and, mm-hmm. and the things that we do for it, right? And so... Uh, so no, I, I think Cotton was great. I think I think it was absolutely a precursor to kind of where we are, where we are as a society right now. So, <laughs> and how everything's all about attention and being a fucking fame horse. <laughs> He's a precursor to Instagram. Exactly. Um. So anyway, thank you at Shannon Morant for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next comment is from at Potato Head. So that's P O T A T A H E D. So that's potato, not potato. Uh, but they say love this one. But how did the stab screenwriters know all the dialogue from Casey's phone calls since everyone involved is dead? Well, <laughs> Right, that's been my question the entire time. And no, I think no. it's because Stu's a blabbermouth. No, my, my answer to both of you is they didn't. <laughs> like, so my answer, to, my answer to both of you is that, uh, is that Gail wrote the book, right? Yeah. And, 
and Gale just, you know, basically made up dialogue, which is why the dialogue in in the stab movie doesn't match what we saw. Mm-hmm. You know, aside from the do like do you like scary movies thing, which is a thing that Nev herself experienced or Sydney experienced. So mm-hmm. maybe Gale, you know, knew that from her. So I don't know. T- to me, all that stuff is just whatever Gale made up in her book. That's what the screenwriters for Stab put up on screen. So I maintain that Stu's Stu is a blabbermouth. Like he was fucking dead. Who did no, he tell? <laughs> when he was still alive, there was a good like couple of days before he like bit the big one where he was at high school that he could have been like, oh, I you heard. Think, you think Stu was going around? Stu was an everybody. idiot. <laughs> no, I compl- I one hundred and fifty percent disagree with Billy. You that Stu, multiple times had to shut Stu down because Stu, he was making himself Stu look guilty. Stu definitely did not go around he saying what the did. killer said to Casey. There's no. Yeah, way. it was just a rumor. He was just like. I heard this thing. All right, whatever. No, completely disagree. <laughs> um, but but that's my answer to that is it's really just the dumb bullshit that Gail made up, and Still. that's what they put on screen. <laughs> Still. <laughs> anyway, thank you at Potato Head for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is a comment from at Horror underscore Blue, and they say I loved it when first watched it, but after spending more and more time with it, it feels lacking a little bit. For me, with Scream, the more that I watch it, and this is how I feel about most of the films. The more I watch it, the more I uncover other layers. But that's also because I'm a big dum-dum, and I just enjoy the kills the first run in. And so I don't get the other layers until I watch it, like, three times. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'd be curious about exactly what was lacking as well. But the mm-hmm. thing I will say, you know, in, in defense of Horror Blue is that, uh, you know, I, I remember that this this has not always been my second favorite Scream film in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason was is because, uh, to be honest with you, I always thought it was kind of a little bit too long. So like, <laughs> uh, so not so so not necessarily lacking, but I thought that it kind of stretched a yeah. little bit further than it should go. You know, because this, this I I could be wrong, but Scream Two might be the longest slasher ever. Uh, I'm not sure if one of the other screams beat it. I'd have to look at it, but 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 it's a very long slasher movie, and mm-hmm. and so you know I I remember uh, initially being well not the first time, but I remember kind of finding Scream Two a little bit boring here and there, mm-hmm. uh, but I have come around to it and sort of you know and accept its brilliance now. Um, but I was not yeah I, I initially I thought it could have been a little bit better maybe, but mm. um, but anyway thank you at horror underscore blue for your comment really appreciate it. And last up is a comment from at Umbrella underscore Ops. So this is my buddy Jeffrey. used to write for me a killer horror critic. What's up, Jeffrey? And he says, to be completely honest, and I know I'm opening myself up to major horror community scrutiny, the Scream franchise never did much for me. That said, one can't ignore Craven's contribution to meta horror. Without it, horror wouldn't be the same. That's for sure. Look, I, I obviously love the Scream franchise, but I'm also a slasher whore, so... You know, that's kind of a given. I can understand how, you know, the Scream franchise might not necessarily be your thing because it is so meta and because, depending on when you got into it, you know, it did change the landscape of slasher films so it can feel redundant and everything like that. So Mm. I totally understand anybody who has a hard time getting into Scream. Me being me, slasher horror, and I fucking love it. Look, for me, it's not even about understanding, you know, I, I'm going through this already with my opinions of Scream 5. And, like, I just, <laughs> you know, I, I respect Jeffrey for saying this because, you know, mm-hmm. to me, it's just like, look, we're all allowed to like and like to like and dislike what we what we do. Right. It's yeah. Again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Like, art, to me, film is completely objective. So. Uh, so, look, I, I think you can love or hate Scream. It doesn't, really doesn't matter to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as long as you can just accept or, or appreciate that, 
it's had the impact that it has, you know, I think that's all that matters. So like, so no, I, I completely, I really appreciate Jeffrey saying this because you know, not not the scream is not going to work for everybody, no. and and it should, and you know, to me, this comment sort of relates directly to like how fandom kind of acts sometimes because. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I respect Jeffrey for being able to say this because Scream is really about sometimes kind of the toxicity of fandom. And, and you know, and there there is just so many fans out there that are like, well, if you don't like Scream, you're not a real horror fan or like yeah. something like that. And that's and it's bullshit. Just, it's just such bullshit. Like yeah. there, there are so many horror films that I don't like that other people love. That doesn't make me not a horror fan. I mean, yeah. I, I would hope you think that yeah, like <laughs> I, I hate... have established myself as enough of a horror fan to not like certain movies. Yeah, I hate that, like, body horror dude whose name is... David Cronenberg. I hate, hate David Cronenberg. <laughs> you know, but, like, Jeffrey, I can accept that he is influential in the industry, and I think that's the difference with... And that's what makes horror fans so awesome. Like... You can accept that something's not for you, but you can still see the merit in it. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, you know. Fuck Cronenberg. (laughs) (laughs) No, not fuck Cronenberg. Fuck Cronenberg. (laughs) You cannot like like him, but don't you dare dare say fuck Cronenberg on this podcast. I'm a little drunk right now, so I'm going to say it. Um, But but no, look, so so I I, I wanted to mention Jeffrey's comics. I want to go out on that note, which is that, you know, look, uh, part of the scream, I think, ideals to me. Is talking about the fact that like, look, you you either love these movies, you either love these movies, you don't, and it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Like all of this stuff is the eye of the beholder. You don't have to like what everybody else likes. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> so, it'd be boring and, if that was and, the case. And 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 look, and, and you know, I just you can think that Scream is brilliant. You can think that it's not. Okay, it's all right, and I want people to acknowledge that and accept that. It doesn't make you any less of a fan mm-hmm. of the genre to not like a particular movie that everybody else does. Yes. Okay, so I just I want everyone Agreed. I want everyone to understand that all of these movies are talking about that misguidedness of fandom, and so please understand that like you're you're becoming part of the problem if you're. <laughs> If you're constantly judging people because of what they like and don't like when it comes to fucking movies, all right? Yeah. It's art. It's objective. Acknowledge that, please, so we can all have better conversations about this stuff instead of just saying, you're a moron or you don't understand horror. You're not a real horror fan. All that's bullshit. It's all gatekeeping crap. (laughs) And so don't do it. No. Don't do it. It's gross. All right. But anyway, thank you at Umbrella underscore Ops for the comment. Appreciate it. So... That's going to do it for us on Scream 2. Uh, we're still getting a little y- <laughs> used to the new formats. So we're still going a little over time here, but I promise that by the end of the month, we should have this down <laughs> and be back to our normal, like, hour 10 runtime. But uh, so next week, we'll be on Scream 3. Yay! I, I do not know offhand of if this is streaming anywhere or not, but as, as much as many people disagree with me, I think it's worth renting if you've never seen it. I actually really like Scream 3. I think it's very clever and fun. It's really fun. Plus, Parker Posey's in it as, like, another Gale. You get two Gales for the price of one. You get two Gales for the price of one, which is never <laughs> a bad thing. Um, so, <laughs> so so go do your homework. Go check out Scream 3 before this and or before next week. And we will see you then. So I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a good night, horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes 
and follow us on Twitter at KillerFromSpace, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled, just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans.